0: I'm going to begin with a quote from a great work of literature. The first line of the story begins like this. When Gregor Samsa woke up one morning from unsettling dreams, he found himself changed in his bed into a monstrous vermin. Now stretch back to, to maybe high school literature class. Do any of you uh, remember where this line is from? We got, we got one. Um, This is the opening line of The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Did any of you have to read this back in the day? Okay, I've got a few hands. Um, I did not have to read this book in school, but I learned about it from my mom who did, and she used to tell me about it with just absolute disgust on her face because it's this book about a man who, as we just read, wakes up one morning and finds himself to be a giant bug, a, a monstrous vermin, right, is, is what it says, and and she'd tell me that she'd rather just about anything. But to wake up one morning and find that she was a giant cockroach or, or something like that. She just hated cockroaches. And any time that we did find one in her house, it was always up to me as a young boy to be the one to catch it, kill it, and get rid of it. Um, and so I don't miss that. I don't miss seeing them. I haven't really seen many since I moved up to the Northwest. I did learn this past week that Houston, where I grew up, uh, I'm, I'm always bringing these little facts, right? is number two in the nation for uh, highly reported cockroach infestations. Um, so I am very glad to not be there anymore. I'm very glad to be up here. So, so Gregor Samsa woke up one morning as a roach or something like it. And for me, I, I hope that if I woke up, it might be a moth instead of a roach. What about you? You might be thinking, neither. I don't want either one of those. What are you talking about? But but we all have to make this choice because I think we are all either roaches or moths. Follow me here. What do I mean by this? Well, one of the most noticeable differences between these two creatures is a word that I learned this last week called phototaxis, and it means how they respond to light, how they respond to light. So have you ever flipped on a light switch and seen a few cockroaches scurrying away, right? And yet, how do moths respond to light, right? They flutter right up next to it. They they get as close as they can. You see, we are all either roaches or moths, okay? John put it this way, In the opening of his gospel, he says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Or he says it a little bit more starkly in chapter 3. John says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And so this is a major theme throughout the book of John, and we're going to see it developed further today as we continue this series, looking at the signs throughout the Gospel of John. So go ahead, if you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is where we're going to be going this morning. Uh, And so, as we've been making our way through these signs, we've stopped to remember each week that the importance of signs, that they are not an end in themselves, but rather they're meant to point us somewhere. So, after church today, if you go out to lunch, right, you're not going to just sit in the parking lot around the sign. You're going to go into the restaurant, find a table so you can eat Food, right? Signs are meant to point us somewhere. They're meant to be followed. And Jesus' signs throughout John are not just miracles or good deeds and mighty acts, but rather signs meant to point people to and to lead them to who he is. And this happens throughout the Gospel of John. People start to see the signs. They start to get a glimpse of who Jesus is, but The more that people begin to see who he is, the more we see that conflict begins to arise. And that's the pattern throughout John. We've talked about this a little bit, that often there is a sign, and then that sign is followed by some kind of conflict and a conversation. So in chapter 2, after Jesus' first sign, water to wine, John then tells the story of a conflict when Jesus went to the temple and overturned the tables. Right? And then in chapter 5, after Jesus healed the lame man by the pool on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders then began persecuting Jesus. And a great debate arises about Jesus' authority and what right he had to do such a thing. In chapter 6, last week, we read about the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus exclaims that he is the bread of life. But many people hear that, and they begin to complain. And they say, this is a hard teaching and they turn around and desert him. And here in chapter 9, we see the very same thing. There's another sign, and it's followed by a lengthy conflict. And in chapter 9, we essentially see a showdown between a moth and a pack of roaches. And it is all because the light of the world is shining. So this conflict plays out throughout the entire chapter, of of chapter 9, and I really want us to hear this whole story. But I thought this morning, rather than me standing up here and reading out 41 verses to you all, that instead I would show you. So I've pulled a clip out of a really great recent word-for-word adaptation of the Gospel of John. Uh, And so we're going to watch this, and I, I encourage you, as we watch this together, pay special attention to the light throughout this. It's really well done. So let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord and watch.
1: As he went along. night is coming, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. wash in the pool of siloam this word means sent so the man went and washed and those who had formerly seen him begging, asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied. And I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? "'Who is he, sir?' the man asked. "'So that I may believe in him.' Jesus said, "'You have now seen him. "'In fact, he is the one speaking with you.' Then the man said, "'Lord, I believe.' And he worshipped him. Jesus said, "'For judgment I have come into this world, "'so that the blind will see, "'and those who see will become blind.'" Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains.
0: Well, as we often say, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, and thank you for bringing lights into our darkness. God, I pray that as we reflect on these words, on this story, and on you, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So these are available on Netflix, by the way. They have all four Gospels. They're really well done. And so just check them out. They're also on YouTube if you don't have Netflix. Um, so anyways, this story in chapter 9, it has three primary scenes that we're moved through, right? There's the sign, and then there's the investigation, and then there's the final meeting between the man and Jesus. And it's a dynamic story. Right? It is bookended by experiences with Jesus, and each scene has multiple points of tension along the way, and we can see the characters changing and growing throughout it. And it's very likely that this whole course of events that are told here uh, played out over the course of, of maybe even a whole week or so. Right? I mean, it alone would have taken probably the better part of a day for this man to get from where he was to the pool that Jesus sent him to, to wash, and then he returns and tells his neighbors, and then they end up taking him over to the Pharisees eventually, and they interview him once, and then they send for his parents, and they interview him a second time. This probably happened in multiple days over the course of a while, and so this is all unfolding and, and then finally, at the very end, there's the great meeting between the man and Jesus. And by this point, we've witnessed throughout a great deal of transformation. And it becomes really clear throughout which character is the moth, right? And which characters are the roaches. And so I want to look at each of these scenes and, and dig into this transformation that occurs throughout it. So the very first scene is the sign itself. Right, It picks up with Jesus and his disciples in verse 1 walking along. And they see a man who had been born blind from birth. And this fact that he was blind from birth is repeated over and over again throughout the story. We see it in verses 1, 2, and 3. It's repeated again in verses 19 and 20. And then again at the end in verses 32 and referenced in 34. And so the fact that he was born... Blind is the reason why the Pharisees actually summon and question the man's parents. It's also the reason why he himself makes the claim, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. There are a couple of other stories in Jewish tradition of blindness being healed. And there are other stories in Jesus' own ministry of blind people being healed, but as this man says, it is never heard that anyone born blind had been healed. And so this fact of blindness from birth resounds throughout the story, and it's that reason why you read at the beginning that the disciples turn to Jesus and ask him, "Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born?" blind. That's where it begins. And Jesus' response to them is stern. I thought the clip did a great job of portraying that. He flat out rejects and dismisses the assumption that's behind their question. In verse 3, Jesus says, it's not their sin that has caused the blindness, but rather this blindness that will cause God's works to be revealed. And Jesus is so much less concerned with theological quandary than that he is about the goodness of God. And I wonder how often Jesus responds the very same way to us, right? He doesn't offer us answers to our questions, but rather love for our brokenness and healing for our wounds. Because you see, we come to God with questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Or we come to God with questions like, what happens when we die? And yet, Jesus invites us to see these not as theological problems, but rather as opportunities for love. Now, I want to say that there is a time and a place for theological quandary. There is a place for asking hard questions and for reflecting on them together. And we must ask those hard questions, not only by ourselves and with each other, but we should also bring those very hard questions to God, just like the psalmist does, who cries out, how long, O Lord? He does bring those questions to God, but ultimately, as we ask questions of theology, it should move us to prayer. And ultimately, that prayer should move us to action. And that's what Jesus invites here. And look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me. Right? He doesn't just say, I must work. But rather, we must work. And we talked about this a little bit last week, if you were here, if you remember, because Jesus could do all of these great things on his own. He's the one sent by God. He has the knowledge and the power to do all of this, and yet he calls us to join him in the work. He delights in bringing us along with him in the work of ministry. And so when we see that people are blind and hungry, who are hurting and alone. Our response should not be to just stop and ask theological questions. And it shouldn't even just be to pray for them, though that's a good start. But ultimately, the call of Christ is to love them, to serve and care for and befriend. Because we have so much not only to offer, but also to receive from those who are hurting and on the margins. Jesus invites us into that work of ministry with him. And so I wonder, what does that look like? What does it look like in your context? right? What does it look like in your home? What does it look like at your workplace? What does it look like with your friends? What does it look like in your neighborhood? Ministry is not what I do here in this building or at this place, but rather what we do in our day-to-day lives as the church. What is God calling you to do? What is he calling us to? Jesus says we must work the works of him who sent me. And then in verse 5, he proclaims, I am the light of the world. And the question is, well, are we moths or are we roaches, right? Do we follow the light and join him in his work or do we flee from the light into the comfort of our own lives? And after saying this, Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, which he puts on the man's eyes, and instructs him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. You see, Jesus doesn't only invite us into the work of ministry with him, right? He even invited this man into the work of his own healing. Jesus does the healing, but the man responds with faith and trust by going to the pool to wash, he empowers us, I believe, to participate in our own healing and growth as well. And at the end of verse 7, the man comes back able to see. And so once the man comes back seeing, we begin to transition into the investigation portion of the story. Jesus has worked the sign, and now we see multiple different responses to what Jesus has done, right? So the first is the response of the people. They don't really know what to make of it. Some of them believe that it's true. Others assume that this man must be someone different who kind of looks like him, but this couldn't possibly be the same person, right? Ultimately, they don't know what to make of it, so they bring the man to their leaders to find out what they say about this astonishing event, They don't know what to make of it, so they consult the authorities. Another response that we see in the story a little bit later on is the response of the parents, right? And they do know more than the crowds know. They know that this is their son and they confirm that he, in fact, was born blind, but the rest they sort of defer because they're afraid. They don't want to say one thing or another about Jesus. And the reality is we may very well relate to either the confusion of the crowd or the fear of the parents, maybe not really knowing what to make of faith or not really wanting to speak up about it out of fear of hostility. And if if that's you, then my invitation here as we continue through the story is to lean in because from the blurry medium of the people and the parents, we begin to see the stark contrast of the Pharisees and this man. These are the most dynamic characters of the story, the Pharisees and the man, right? They go on opposing journeys throughout the story. The man begins the story blind, but Jesus gives him sight. And yet the Pharisees begin their part of the story as authorities who ought to be able to see clearly. And yet at the end, Jesus pronounces them blind. And so as we see this contrast, it it becomes more and more stark and develops more and more throughout the story. So let's look at the Pharisees. At first, they seem to honestly and fairly investigate what's going on. They ask the man, what happened, and they begin to reason it out among themselves. In verse 16, some of them think that Jesus must not be from God, because once more he is healed on the Sabbath. Others think that, well, but Jesus must be a righteous person. He was able to perform this great sign, right? So it says they were divided. And from this division, they continue their investigation, right? They bring the parents in and they begin to ask them questions, and the parents all but confirm the man's story, right? They, they sort of confirm pieces and, and defer pieces, and yet still, the Pharisees in their investigation are not satisfied. So they bring the man back, and in verse 24, they're much more resolutely against Jesus. And they say, we know this man is a sinner. But whenever the man who had been blind doesn't respond the way they want him to, they sink down low to just insulting him flat out. In verse 34, they accuse him, you were born entirely in your sins. And are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. They sent him out from the synagogue. And so throughout the narrative, the Pharisees move from division about Jesus to an outright denial of Jesus. They see the light, and they flee from it. And I love how the clip actually portrayed this, right? Where are all of these scenes with the Pharisees? They're in a dark and a shadowy place, and they're the ones with their backs turned to the light standing between the man in the light of day, just as they're the ones standing between him and the light of the world. But then the man's journey is quite different than theirs. Look at the way that he describes Jesus throughout the story, right? At first, when he's responding to the people in verse 11, he describes Jesus just as the man called Jesus, that's all he has to say about it. But then when he is questioned by the Pharisees the first time, he tells them in verse 17, well, he, he must be a prophet. And then after being questioned over and over again, he finally concludes in verse 33, well, this man must be from God. And so by this point, he's beginning to actually evangelize the Pharisees. He says, do you want to become his disciples too? Right? Right? And so this man has moved through the story from knowing only that he was called Jesus to proclaiming that he must be from God and actually inviting others to actively follow him too. Now, before we move to the final meeting scene of the story, I want to point out a couple of things about these sort of opposing trajectories that we see with the Pharisees and the man. And the first is, I think we see from this that it really matters how we listen to, and how we share our own stories. Because throughout this story, the Pharisees don't really listen, do they? They've ignored the truth, they've rejected facts, and they end up in the dark. They listened with judgmental intent, and they reject the light. Meanwhile, the man is continuously proclaimed the truth. And he shares not only the bare facts of what happened, but actually shares his own story, his experience of what happened. And he says this, I once was blind, but now I see. And he ends the story in the light. You see, how we listen to and tell our stories matters. Because every time we buy into a lie to justify ourselves, you know, oh, this sin isn't really a big deal, or oh, that person doesn't really matter, they'd probably just spend money on drugs or alcohol anyway, right? Every time we justify ourselves, we take one more step toward the darkness. We take one more step away from the light and we come just a little bit more roach like. But every time we recount the story of redemption, right? I once was blind, but now I see. We take a step toward the light. We were once slaves in Egypt, but God has set us free, right? We were once dead in our sins, but God has made us alive together in Christ. These are the stories of redemption that we find throughout Scripture. What is your story of redemption? How is it that God has saved you? How is God saving you, right? This is why we gather week after week after week. We gather around the table and every week we retell this story of redemption. We confess our sins, we break bread, and we proclaim his death until he comes again. Every time we retell this story, we can be a little bit more sure of it. And just like this blind man, we become more and more confident in who Jesus is. So that's the first thing that I want to point out about this. How we listen to and tell our stories matters. The second thing that I want to point out is that up to this point in the story, this man has not yet seen Jesus. Have you noticed that? He has not yet seen Jesus. His whole life has been changed and transformed by Jesus. Right, He is questioned again and again by the people and the Pharisees, and yet he hasn't even seen Jesus with his own eyes. But nonetheless, he is the primary witness and spokesperson for Jesus throughout the story. He's the one who tells the people Jesus' name. He tells the Pharisees, That Jesus is from God, and he even begins to invite them to become Jesus' disciples. And he does all of this at the risk of being rejected and thrown out. Now, I wonder if any of us can relate to that. Right? This is a picture of the church. We are a people whose lives have been touched and transformed by Jesus. And even though we have not yet seen him with our own eyes, we are his witnesses. We're the ones who are sent out to proclaim his name, to tell the world that he is from God, and to invite others to become his disciples as well. We are a people who were blind, But now, by our trust in Jesus, we can see. And that leads us to the very last scene, right? The final meeting between Jesus and this man. And in the last scene, the man who had been healed by Jesus and witnessed to Jesus becomes a worshiper of Jesus. This exchange begins in verse 35. Where Jesus finds the man and asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responds, well, who is he? And Jesus answers, you have seen him. He is the one talking to you. And the man proclaims, Lord, I believe. And he worships Jesus. And we do this in part every week when we gather here. We proclaim our faith, and we worship Jesus together. But there is coming a day when we will no longer do this just in part, but we will do it in whole. There's coming a day when our faith will become sight, and we too will hear Jesus say, you have seen me. But until that day comes, for now, the light shines in the darkness, and we know that the darkness will not overcome it. But the question is are we those who love the darkness, or are we those who live in the light? What is our response to seeing the light of the world? Shall we join with this man and say, I once was blind, but now I see? Or will our words be those of the Pharisees in verse 40 who say, surely we're not blind, are we? Jesus' response to them in verse 41 is that the blind have no sin, but the ones who think they can see are filled with it. And this is just like what he says elsewhere, right? Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log in your own, right? Or he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Because the heart that insists on its own righteousness is clouded in darkness. But the pure heart is the one that knows its own shortcomings. And this is the heart that Jesus says sees God. And so my challenge to you this week is to consider that opening question. When you wake up in the morning, is it a moth or a roach that you find yourself as? In your day-to-day life, do you move toward the light of Christ or away from it? And the reality is that we're probably all somewhere in the middle, right? A messy mix of darkness and light, sometimes living selfishly, Insisting on our own righteousness in other times, truly living in the Spirit, slowly being transformed and renewed by the light. But in the midst of that messiness, I want to give you one practical challenge this week, and that is to rehearse your story of redemption Retell that story just like the man born blind told his story over and over and over again. I want to challenge you to tell your story this week. And maybe that begins by just writing it down in a journal or something like that. But ultimately, I would love to challenge you to find one person to share your own story with this week. And the goal isn't to convert anybody. It's not to bring them to church. Rather, the goal is simply to share your own experience of Jesus with someone else and let God do the rest. Because I believe as we tell our stories and tell them over again, that we might just take a few more steps toward the light. And I pray that as we do this, that at the end of this week, we would find ourselves closer to the light than we are right now. May it be so. Amen.